0: Welcome to Studio Berlin, our weekly current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. I'm your host, Sumi Somaskanda. This is a special show because it is our one-year anniversary. We've had a terrific ride over the past year and covered a lot of ground, and it has been great to have you with us. This week, we're talking about a protest movement that has swept the world, Black Lives Matter. After the killing of George Floyd in police custody in Minnesota, people have been taking to the streets globally. including here in Berlin, which you heard there. These protests have also been a platform to highlight racism and discrimination faced here in Europe by black people, people of color and other minority groups. We're back in the studio. Our guests are joining us on the phone. We have Malcolm O'Hanway with us. He's a journalist for the public broadcaster, the Bayerische Rundfunk and host of the podcast, Kanaka Welle, that discusses politics and racism, among other things.
1: Very uh, excited to be here
0: and we have Larry Olamofa on the line. He served as an advisor for combating racism and discrimination for the OSCE and he's the executive director of PADLINK, PAD for people of African descent. It's an organization based in Warsaw that among other things provides a legal basis for fighting racial injustice in Europe.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of this discussion.
0: Malcolm, I want to start with you because over the past weekend there were protests in solidarity with the US protests. They were all across Germany and the largest was in Munich and you were there. Tell us more about that.
1: It was really interesting to see so many people be all of a sudden so enthusiastic about anti-racism. That was something I had never experienced in this city. Munich um, widely is known to be like, it's one of the biggest cities, but it's not really known to be racially diverse or aware. Like it doesn't have the same reputation as Cologne or Berlin or Hamburg or Frankfurt who um, are a little bit more forward when it comes to these topics. Um, However, we turn out to have the largest crowd. Um, I thought that while there was a great outcome, I was a little disappointed with uh, the speeches. So they weren't really, they didn't make any demands. We didn't talk about structural racism. It was more so about, you know, honoring George Floyd and his death and then basically coming together lots of love and unity talk and not we need to tackle white supremacy we need to empower black people that was something that I was missing actually from the content but there were a lot of people and that is cool to begin with I guess.
0: Okay so you're saying it could have been an opportunity to do more. Larry I want to ask you about the protests that we've seen really uh, take off here in Europe. How have you been observing the fact that George Floyd's killing in the U.S. has become such a touchstone here in Europe as well.
2: I just think it was just one more of a constant stream of events similar to the tragic uh, death of uh, George Floyd. And it may have been the proverbial straw that brought the camels back, right? And in a way, it kind of highlights, you know, the structural forms of discrimination that people of color, people of African descent have been facing for many years, many generations. And... With every passing generation, we just see this repetition in terms of, you know, uh, authorities exceeding or taking, you know, uh, aggressive actions based upon their prejudices and their biases against people of colour, which is informed, I would say, by policing strategies such as profiling. And in a way, I want to kind of link that to the the point that Malcolm made, which is this is an opportunity not just to commemorate or to memorise or to draw attention to what happened in the United States, but also to turn the focus inwards and to see what's happening at home. Because, you know, it's not as if Germany is kind of exempted from police uh, killings or people dying in police custody, as well as the forms of profiling that occur in Germany by police and other policing or security agencies. And it's the same in other countries in Europe too, where we see this pattern, maybe not to the extent of a death, but you do see this kind of aggressive over-policing of people of colour stopping and searching, you know, and its it was just, I would say, the perfect opportunity to draw attention to the internal issues as well and not just to sort of kind of point the fingers at the American uh, version. Um, I, so I do see this as, a, as an opportunity, really, to kind of get our own home or houses in order as well. So it's a catalyst for that. And this is what we... I think, uh, have to advocate or push for in in the coming days and years.
0: Malcolm, I want to ask you to reflect on what we just heard from Larry, because something I have heard from at least a political level here in Germany is that we don't have this similar type of racism here, if you look at what's happening in the U.S. So how can you compare these daily experiences of racism in the U.S. to to what people of color experience uh, here in Germany?
1: That is a great question. I lived in, in the United States. I worked in Atlanta for NPR. And what I found interesting is that um, there was a form that had my ethnicity or my racial background on there, which is something that we don't have in Germany. So in the United States, there's an actual language and acknowledgement of racial differences. Now, you can look at this from both angles. You can say, well, maybe that's a problem. Maybe we shouldn't think in racist. But you can't tackle issues if there's no language for that. Where in Germany, we... We, we are not even capable of speaking about race, and it's not something that is acknowledged. And so that makes um, race relations so much different in Germany because people don't even want to acknowledge that you're black. People can't even say that you are black. Like even the word black, which is schwarz, it makes people uncomfortable to actually even acknowledge that you have a different uh, skin color. There is this overt, extreme um, need for colorblindness, which then makes my and other people's experiences invisible, and it doesn't mean that there isn't any racism. It means that we can't speak about the racism and that people have an easier time to ignore the racism because we have um, a severe problem with police brutality, even with the Black Lives Matter situations and the protests that happened, I've seen so much footage of black people being detained, and I have made the experience of being racially profiled, being, experiencing verbal, ra- um, racially charged violence by police, and I don't know any black male in Germany that has not had um, a very negative experience with the police. And that is something that has to be addressed, needs to talked about. As far as where's the difference, I think the United States actually acknowledges those problems where we like to pretend like we don't have these issues.
0: Larry, I want to ask you about this as well. Uh, The work that you do with your organization, Padlink, you were speaking about police brutality earlier. What are some of the instances or examples of police brutality that your organization documents, collates, and and what kind of work are you trying to do? Are you trying to bring awareness to these issues?
2: So there is a qualitative difference between when we say police aggression and police violence. Uh, I would actually refer to it as overzealous policing because... We don't necessarily have uh, uh, cases of these extreme examples that Malcolm just mentioned. It's quite interesting that I have never been stopped in the streets here in Poland, never, in my 11 years here in Poland. But every time I go to Germany uh, on the train, I get stopped every single time. And it kind of refers back to what Malcolm was saying about the discourse in Germany, because it's all... Under the surface, right? It's all in a sub- subaltern way. But um, my experiences through my work has been, you know, raiding communities and effectively targeting migrants because that's now a legitimate target because of the political discourse that kind of implies that any migrant is always in that particular place illegitimately, you know. And so there's a lack of trust really from the community because when they do suffer more egregious acts of violence from civilians, like hate crime. They don't go to the police because they feel that the police are unsympathetic and it just contains or continues that cycle of mistrust and violence, actually. And then at some point, some retaliation and recrimination from the black community. And that is part of the problem. And this is what we try to draw attention to just simply by bringing different strategies of policing to police officers. So in my former post. I used to advise governments in the, within the OSCE uh, rubric on how legislation is in place and that there's a particular, a positive duty on states to investigate uh, racial components or racist components in, in criminal acts and providing training to police officers as well as to prosecutors and to judges in application of the law and investigation of hate crime and hate incidents. So the firebombing of immigrants' homes in Germany over the last few years, this is considered a hate crime. But the legislation in Germany is quite tricky because they don't necessarily, because of the fact that they don't identify races or or differences, makes it difficult to apply the rule of the law. And uh, part of the work I did at the time, when I used to go to Germany, was to try and establish a specific legislation for hate crime that would... Which would cover these other more, which I would consider to be banal acts, and so uh, you know insults or uh, incidents on in public transport in the public sphere, um, which didn't really get much traction because the internal political dynamic of Germany was 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 focused in a different way. Um, so this is why Padlink is, is was established already to start looking at lit- litigation and looking at jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights to try and find some kind of leverage to compel states to, you know, establishing precedents and compel states to actually reform legislation and to take these things more seriously.
0: Malcolm, that brings me to a law that has recently been passed here in Berlin, an anti-discrimination law when we talk about policing. That's gotten a lot of pushback from the federal interior minister, for example, Hoss from a police union saying this is putting police under general suspicion. What do you think? How significant is this legislation? And, and does it uh, put police under suspicion when they uh, haven't uh, earned that?
1: I don't know if I like the word suspicion, but police should be in question all the time. Yes, we they sh- sh- should be held accountable to very high standards, and they should know that they're being checked. And so I don't find it a problem that they feel as though they have to do their work properly and accurately, and that people are skeptical. You can't blindly trust state power, especially in a country with a history like Germany, that... Um, has killed its minorities, annihilated its minorities, and has a huge race problem and is the epitome of the neo-Nazi movement. So, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't feel much, uh, I don't know, sympathy for those people who are concerned about being held accountable for their work. Um, I, I mean, I don't like the word suspicious, but, I mean, yeah, you should, you should feel some sort of pressure to do a good job and not be racist.
0: And I just want to ask one quick question to both of you. Do you think we're seeing a turning point, seeing the protests in the US that continue to grow as we're speaking? Uh, we've seen the protests go global, this demand for racial justice. Is this a watershed moment in race relations? Larry, let's start with you.
2: I'm a bit skeptical, uh, simply because I feel that the, the movement, as, as pure or as genuine as it is, is also serving as a platform to fight different battles, political battles and interests. So if this had happened under President Obama's watch, I don't think we'd have this reaction today. So you have Trump with his rather draconian strategies, and I feel that's fueling the fire for everyone else to participate. And so there's a a, a different agenda there. When we see it across the world, I just can't divorce it or separate it from the current situation in terms of the pandemic and the resistance to government measures and the illusion or the suggestion that states have overreached um, in terms of curbing civil liberties in the name of public health. And that for me, I feel, fuels a lot of what's happening in a place like Poland or in other places too. Not to suggest that or to imply that they're not genuine platforms and not genuine concerns, but I think there's a crystallization of a number of of issues uh, on this. In terms of a turning point, I think potentially it could be. But having observed the Arab Spring and the energy from that in terms of the reform taking place in North Africa, and then the subsequent kind of reappropriation of all, you know, alignment of the movement, or of that particular revolutionary zest uh, to get for change, and then the petering out of that whole, that whole energy... I just feel that for things to take hold, there will have to be a big structural, well, first of all, political acknowledgement, and then a big structural development. Even though it's Black Lives Matters, and you know we all accept that, it's still Black Lives being taken, despite every intervention up to now. And I really just don't see that changing. So this is why I'm a bit sceptical, really, uh, about seeing this as some kind of seminal moment where things are going to change.
0: Malcolm, I want to get your quick take on it.
2: I think it had the potential
1: to be, but when I was in Munich and I talked to a lot of black folk, they were actually disappointed with the things that were said or more so the things that weren't said so i I think what one one of the core factors was a lot I saw a lot of white people leaving with a very nice, happy jolly old feeling like they've done something like they've really ended racism I felt like a lot of white people got their sense of absolution like I've done my part now I can go lay my head on my pillow and feel like I've, I've done what I needed to do but I don't feel like white people should leave such a um, protest with a nice feeling they should feel uncomfortable they should feel anger agony their brain should start you know rattling and they should be thinking oh my god how have I um, contributed to the system when was, when was the last time that I I didn't say anything when somebody was uh, insulted racially. When did I do it myself? When did I not check my parents and my family? I uh, really hope these conversations are being started, and I really hope that we continue to talk about it and not see it as a punctual, trendy movement. Because if we do, I think it could have even been to more detriment than help.
0: Very interesting discussion. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you both. Larry Olomofe, the executive director of Padlink in Warsaw, and Malcolm O'Hanwit, journalist and host of the podcast, Kanaka Shavelle. Great to have you both.
2: It was a pleasure to thank you. for the invitation to have this chat. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Afro-Census Initiative. You're listening to KCRW Berlin on 104.1 FM.
1: I'm Todd Zwilich. We named 1A after the First Amendment. It's for everybody, especially the curious. And because things are rarely black and white, 1A brings you all the colors. Join me weekdays and keep listening to this NPR station
3: throughout the day. Tune into 1A weekdays at four on 104.1 KCRW Berlin.
0: Hey, you, you've been hearing and reading the news all day. So what are you getting out of it? Are you smarter, more informed, better prepared for your dinner party later tonight? Well, The Takeaway has you covered. We ask the tough questions, we hold lawmakers accountable, and if something just doesn't seem right, we ask, how did we get here? It's The Takeaway with me, Tanzina Vega.
2: Tune in to The Takeaway weeknights at six on 104.1 KCRW Berlin.
0: Welcome back to Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM. We're talking about racism in Europe in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the ongoing protests around the world. I wanted to talk about a project here in Germany called AfroCensus or AfroCensus that's looking to give a voice to the more than 1 million people of African descent who call Germany home. The initiative is organized by the education and empowerment group Each One Teach One. We have Joshua kwesi Akins joining us on the phone from home. He helped put the census initiative together. He's a political scientist and human rights activist and a lecturer at the University of Kassel. His research focuses on the decolonization of public space and human rights-based anti-discrimination policy, among other subjects. Kweisi, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Could you explain what the AfroCensus initiative is?
4: Sure. So the idea behind AfroCensus is that um, we want to finally gather more differentiated data about the Black experience in Germany what we said is, okay, we want to set out to actually gather this differentiated data that tells us more about the lived experience of black people here, that yes, asks about discrimination, but also asks about their contributions, about um, you know the opinions of people of African descent in this country. Um, and the idea was that we should do this ourselves. So instead of having... You know, some people who are not from the community, having the state or some outside researchers come in and look at us as, you know, objects of their research. We wanted to be the subjects of our own research. So we organized this census and we're now reaching out to people from the diverse African, black and African Diaspora communities across the country, inviting them to sign up so that when we start the census at the end of the month, we hear from as many people as possible.
0: The government hasn't historically collected this type of data on racism and ethnicity because of Germany's history. Are you worried that this data could possibly be used against the black community?
4: Well, German history always looms large in these discussions. So it's really important for us that we are actually the ones who are conducting the survey. Now, um, of course, it's important for us to meet all the very stringent European and German data protection regulations, which are, of course, also informed by the very history you just spoke about. So this is really, really important for us. But we are confident that we not only meet these criteria. I mean, there are, of course, external checks, right? There is a data protection agency that looks into this. But beyond the data being safe, it's also important for us that the questions we ask are right, that the perspective from which we come at this is really in line with different black experiences in the country and that's why we actually went around the country we had focus groups we had um town hall meetings you know in different cities across the country and spoke to people about their experience and all these inputs you know have informed our creation of the census of the of the actual survey the actual questionnaire
0: when you had those conversations with people, what were the biggest challenges that people addressed facing the Black community here? I know it's not monolithic, it's incredibly diverse, but what were some of the challenges that were raised?
4: Yeah, so um, and we started this last year and some of these conversations have been had months ago, but um, it's important to say that racial profiling is actually an issue that came up time and time again. Um, so that's really something that's a huge problem for people here. Um, but also uh, other kinds of discrimination. We are a very young community. We are, in fact, among the youngest communities in the country uh, and therefore, of course, also a big part of the future of this country. And so a lot of people also talk about discrimination in the education setting, whether it's kindergarten, school or university, you know, where the anti-black racism is also felt uh, by people of different Ages and people also speak about um, challenges in the housing market, challenges finding accommodation, and people also speak about discrimination in the healthcare system. Right where people try to you know seek um, healthcare and then find themselves being discriminated against, facing anti-black racism from their care providers.
0: When we speak about systemic discrimination, we talked earlier in the show with one of our guests about the new anti-discrimination law that's been passed here in Berlin. Do you think this addresses some of those issues?
4: Uh, Well, thanks for raising this. I think this is a really, really important um, law because, yes, it does, in fact, address some of the issues we spoke about earlier. In fact, it closes a gap in protection that is really a big problem across the country because we have a federal anti-discrimination law, but um, it doesn't cover public institutions. So it doesn't cover schools. It doesn't cover the police. Uh, And yes, of course, in our constitution, the German constitution does have a very general, you know, ban on discrimination, but because there has been no simple uh, law where this has been encoded, there have always been problems, you know, when you try to uh, bring this to court. And so this is really, really important. And many organizations, people of African descent, people of Turkish descent, all sorts of Organizations of people of color, people who face racism in this country and in the city, in Berlin, have you know lobbied for this for years, uh, have explained time and time again that this law is necessary to close that gap in protection. So this is just an actualization of rights that people already possess.
0: Kweisi, I want to get your take on the outpouring of support we've seen for George Floyd here in Germany. You've talked about examples of racism and discrimination here, and German authorities have recorded 41,000 cases of politically motivated crime in 2019. That's up 14 percent from the previous year. Anti-Semitic crimes were also up 13 percent. Attacks on Muslims were as well. So why do you think it is that what we saw in the U.S. has brought so many people out onto the streets here?
4: Um, This focus on uh, what happened to George Floyd and the particular brutality of that video of the torture and the killing um, really um, resonates deeply with people who then connect this with their own experiences and cases that have happened in Germany and across Europe. And so for us, this is something that we have been speaking out against for a very long time. Um, And what I find heartening and important about this is that very clearly this time, it's not so much a debate about individual misdeeds. It's very much a recognition of the systemic nature of this problem and the need for systemic answers, um, both in the U.S. and here in Germany as well.
0: Joshua kwesi Akins, a political scientist and human rights activist, a lecturer at the University of Kassel. Thank you for taking time out of your day at home to speak with us.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to get some historical context on racism here in Germany and Europe. I caught up with Peggy Pischoff. She's a literary and cultural studies scholar focused on Black European studies. She's a diversity and intersectionality senior policy advisor at the Federal Agency for Civic Education. She's also part of ADEFRA, the organization for Black women and women of color in Germany. You grew up uh, in East Germany, actually. What was the experience like of uh, growing up black in East Germany? And was there a black community there that felt some sort of solidarity that that recognized that there was a community to bring together?
3: Growing up in East Germany was kind of special, a little different than in uh, in West Germany, but in terms of uh, structural racism, pretty similar. Uh, Of course, I didn't know that at the time. But um, later, um, after the war came down and after I started to work on issues on race and uh, the history of racism in in Germany, I was actually stunned to see how similar our experiences were. And that made me also understand um, what structural racism means and what it is. It is not just the daily life experience of people, but it means that it really goes far back in the history of the country, even so that um, both countries after forty nine uh, went on to go different paths politically, the uh, racism issue was pretty much the same. so it started with um, being very much isolated, isolated also in in terms of uh, not being recognized as a child which is uh, just a child as the next one in class or in kindergarten or on street and it continues with the uh, lack of m- material for growing up uh, to be you know to identify yourself to see something you know have a mirror for how you want to grow up or of uh, what you want to become The differences were, indeed, how the countries uh, positioned themselves. Um, So East Germany was very much uh, on the side of international solidarity. So I did grow up with an idea of being in in solidarity uh, connections with uh, young um, national states in Africa and also the civil rights movement in the U.S., However, it was always a kind of a split uh, experience and to notice that um, it did not mean included the experience I have in East Germany. So it was always the solidarity abroad.
0: Why do you think in Europe there is such solidarity among white and black Europeans with the American Civil Rights Movement, now with the Black Lives Matter movement? We've seen these massive protests Mm -hmm. here on the streets of Germany as well. I was reading that Angela Davis, for example, was a cult figure in East and West Germany. Uh, Why do you think that is?
3: I think we have a long tradition in Germany with uh, the imagination and the longing for the other and it started out in the during the Enlightenment, uh, where basically the German philosophy uh, started to imagine the other and also the power in the other. And that continued pretty much into the uh, 20th century. And of course, uh, very close in recent uh, history, it's good when it is not that close and home, you know. It is always good to celebrate uh, political leaders and uh, to celebrate revolutions uh, as long as it doesn't threaten the own home base.
0: That was literary and cultural studies scholar Peggy Pisha joining us. Thanks for listening to Studio Berlin. Next week, we're going to be taking a closer look at policing and something we touched upon a bit in this show, the new anti-discrimination law in Berlin. As we said, Studio Berlin has been on the air for one year, and we want to thank you again for tuning in here and following us. Please continue to do so on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.